for our feature interview this week. It is a real pleasure to welcome back to the show our very first guest on the podcast, Irish ultra and trail running legend Ian Keat. He needs no introduction for many, but for those that might be relatively new to the sport, he holds the Irish records for 24-hour running, 248 kilometres, 48-hour road running, 343 kilometres, and six-day running, 815, along with many more course records for Irish ultra distances. He holds the world record for the fastest crossing of Ireland on foot, running from Mizzenhead to Malinhead in three days, three hours and 47 minutes in May 2017. His best race results, and he's a fantastic competitor, are finishing fifth in the 24-hour world championships in Bergamo in 2009, finishing as second place um, Vet 40 in the 2013 UTMB, finishing second in the six-day world trophy in hungary in 2015 and winning the spine race in 2016 setting a new course record in 2019 he won the extremely tough and technical 170k utmb oman race where i was very lucky to be at the working at the finish line as he came home champion and recently he won the summer spine race setting a new fastest time as well he is a multiple winner of the irish 24-hour running championships and has been awarded the Athletics Ireland Ultra Runner of the Year on four occasions, the only person to win this award more than once. Imagine the trophy cabinet in that household. Ian Keat, first Irish finisher home in the 2021 UTMB. Ian, you are our very first guest on the Trail Running Ireland podcast, so a real privilege to welcome you back. It's a real privilege to be back and uh, an honour to be the second or the first repeater. <laughs> yeah, well, Ian, you were the first Irishman home, coming home there on Saturday night. And what a wonderful experience it was to, to see you charge home. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the race now very shortly. But I thought maybe we could start off today, Ian, by just asking you about your recovery since Saturday, because there's a lot of big trail and ultra races coming up at home now in Ireland. Kerry Ultra this weekend. Eco Trail, Wicklow at the end of the month. And I'm sure a lot of people will be doing their own UTMBs and they would love to know your own secrets of recovery because you've been doing it so well for so long now. So maybe could, could you talk us through your recovery process and what, you, what you've been doing since Saturday night, apart from the, the rush to the Thai restaurant <laughs> once you got <laughs> to the finish line and you, and you were thrown into a wheelchair? Yeah, um, uh, recovery is an interesting thing. Uh, the first thing is you, you have to know yourself. No one can tell you what the best way for you to recover. It's a very individual thing. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, ready reckoner rules out there in the running world that would, I can't remember them exactly because I know for something like the UTMB, they probably tell you that you need half a year to recover. Whereas, I've actually managed to race uh, three big ultras in six weeks, you know, with two weeks big, uh, um, separating them. So you can you can have very quick recovery sometimes, um, more than most people would anticipate. And then sometimes, you know, you just don't feel it. A race, a race might take it more out of you than you expected. So I get different recoveries for different races, uh, not necessarily related to the length of the race, uh, but usually related in some way to the, the, the degree of 
effort should you put into the race? I know that the last time I did the UTMB ended up with a one kilometer sprint finish uh, down through the town. And that really destroyed me for the next 24, 48 hours, just that last kilometer. Whereas uh, this year I didn't have that and I was in much better shape. So I was actually make it to the Thai restaurant, which I wasn't able to do the previous time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they, basically I've been doing very little since. Yeah. So in terms know. of say nutrition, you know, I mean, would you, would you go to the trouble of watching what you eat in terms of anti-inflammatory foods? Would you be, you know, sleeping more in the days after, getting massages? Or, or is it just kind of life as usual and just tone down the energy levels a bit? And I presume the, the training comes right back as well. Yeah, it's it's pretty much aiming towards life as usual, but, you know, allowing it a lot more rest as in. Uh, yeah, I, I, I now give myself a couple of days off from, from training completely, which is easy when it's a foreign trip like that because you just, you know, you've got to make the journey home. So I don't restart exercise until I get home. Uh, and I only restarted uh, the, the Wednesday today, as it happens, uh, afterwards uh, for this particular race. Um in terms of nutrition, I try and eat well and try not to overeat, but I still allow myself you know, some comfort foods just for the sheer pleasure of it, having earned it. So, uh, you know, didn't deprive myself of any ice cream there. Uh, but I do still try and keep the, the quality, you know, relatively normal. I, I do try and eat pretty good quality food and, and as little junk as I can get away with. Uh, there's a temptation to, to eat away all the race food and I try and get that put away as fast as possible so that uh, there's none left to, to eat because there is a, a, a I think the body does tend to rebound uh, and try and grab in um, more calories after a big expenditure like that so I have to be kind of disciplined not to end up heavier a week later than before you started the race so just have to watch that and not overeat in the, in the few days afterwards and just try and keep it a little bit controlled but you know you don't need to don't need to go mad as i say as normal as possible in my case so i'm definitely back to my normal eating habits pretty pretty quickly yeah so i mean today before the race when people were talking about maybe who the potential winner could be you know, everybody was looking at Francois de Hen, who, of course, had that wonderful victory on Saturday afternoon. But people maybe would have had question marks that he won the Hard Rock 100 only six weeks before and yeah. could he cover. So it sounds like from somebody in the know like yourself that would you have thought that Francois would have been able to recover OK and that he would have been one of the key favorites for the race because i wasn't sure if he could recover from such a physical effort but it sounds like you know experienced runners in the ultra community in that you guys know what you're doing and you know how to manage your recovery very well like francois did yeah and if i was francois i'd be i'd be as soon as i'd finish hard rock i would say to myself well that's a great training one for utmp and okay. six week out is a good good pacing for a good a hard effort training run even though you know in reality it wasn't a training run but you know uh, as as they all say as Ron Kiva say you're also looking forward you don't rest in your laurels so once the, the hard rock is out of the way hard rock has now been preparation for UTMB and that's the way I, I if I was him I'd have mentally attacked it and I have no doubt that a man of his ability would have be on exactly that approach and if you think about it a good good hard run six weeks before your your key race is uh, yeah that's good training program and that's why i looked at it so i didn't see any problem with that and you know I, i've 
I've done the same myself on many occasions, and that's always the way I do it. You know, uh, even if it was a harder event, I'd still look at it. Like for example, the time I did uh, my run from uh, Mizzen to Manon, uh, two months or about two months before the uh, World Twenty Four Hour Running Championships, and uh, most people would have said that was way too big an effort that would destroy you for a long time. But I thought personally that that was perfect timing and, and so it turned out to be because I ran my PB on that race so you know yourself you know how what you're capable of and what your recovery is I, I seem to myself have fast recoveries but then I know that and I can allow for it but I'm still not as fast recovering as I was when I was younger where I could race an ultra on a on a weekend and run a, a Nimra Wednesday night race on the following Wednesday and be pretty much back, almost back to full speed I wouldn't do that these days but I wouldn't be far off it I would still consider myself fairly recovered after about two weeks. So I will, in my own case, intend to race um, the Eco Trail in Wicklow, which is uh, about three weeks away at this date. So yeah, and exactly I reckon I'll be 25th. fully, fully ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's again the way I'd be looking at it. Yeah, fantastic. And before Amy, get to your own um, race and your own adventure and battle that you had for for the podium in, in the V2 category, the the week itself, of course, was marked by the tragedy of the Czech runner who fell and passed away in the TDS. A, a really, really sad moment when he suffered from the injuries that he picked up after falling on the steep descent from Passur de Prolog Nan. In, from your experience, mountaineer background, I'm very interested just to know what your own thoughts on what happened was and how the organization dealt with it. Because I know I have, say, my views on it, but I realize that I'm maybe not a true mountaineer and adventurer like you are, a city boy from Dublin who wouldn't be exposed to, to such accidents. And for me, it was really impactful. And for myself and the team that were working on the race announcer team, we all really felt it that morning when we woke up to that news. But for, for yourself, Ian, how did you feel? And I know you were with some of the Irish TDS runners in the 24 hours after the race. Um, what was your own take on, on what happened? Yeah, I think I definitely have a more uh, mountaineers uh, type approach to the right, which is you know you are responsible for your own um when you go into the mountains you're responsible for your own safety and even if you're in a race fundamentally that doesn't matter you're you are still the number one person responsible for your own safety and you, you uh have to take the consequences of that responsibility as well so um it, it sounds harsh but i've been there you know uh, in a very real way uh, a friend of mine was killed mountaineering right in front of me. Um, so I very much know what this is all about and what it's like and being right in the middle of the process. Um, but my own point of view is I think the race did pretty well on handling it. Uh, they were never going to win. There's no good way of doing this because you're dealing with a tragedy and you can't walk around that, you know, uh, you can't make it better. You can only try and move on in the best manner you can. And no matter what you do, someone, you know, especially when you're dealing with uh, a thousand people up on a mountain, someone is going to, a lot of people are going to be unhappy with uh, the decisions you make because there, there is no optimal decision. There is no right decision. There may be optimal, but there mm. is no right decision. And what's right to some people will be wrong to others. Um, 
that you do. You can't stop a race because someone gets injured because people get injured in every race. Um, if do you stop a race because someone gets killed? You know, it's you'll get a lot of opinions on it, and again, you get people disagreeing. I know, in, in from my own, if it was me that was lying dead on the side of the mountain, I would want people to to carry on racing, and you know, do their best, you know, and and have their best race, and 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 you know, not worry about the fact that I was there, but. You know, you have other people who would say that, uh, that you know the race should come to a complete stop. There is yeah. no right answer, you know, and yeah. it's yeah. a tough one. The race can only do what they can do, and um, yeah, the, as I say, I, I, I would, I would say, or on the side of the YouTube, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go looking for a better solution to what the UTMB did. They did what they did, and they did what they thought right was right. Uh, they'll take the criticism from people who think they could have done better, but you know, they had to make rather quick decisions on the fly and, and did the best they could, and that's all they can really ask from as far as yeah. I'm concerned. And and I was actually close within an eardrop of some of those conversations, Ian, as we were getting ready for the start of the OCC the next day. And the people that were making the decisions, you know, they live and they have lived in Chamonix all their lives. So they probably do have a different approach um, to, you know, city folk like myself, if you like. Um, and I was just doing some research before we came on the call today and just looking at some of the stats. And unfortunately, people die in Chamonix all the time and all the time Blanc alone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. over 1500 yeah. people have died in Mont Blanc. And in Chamonix, between paragliding, hiking, mountaineering, mountain bikes, quad bikes, the stats are actually scary. And I saw one stat, Ian, alone of in July last year, on one day, seven people died in the Chamonix area. Yeah. And it's, so, it's no surprise. It's, it's, part of, it's part of the risk reward, you know. And, you know, if you go into the mountains, you, you don't go without risk, you know. And, yeah. you know, in the case of, of my friend who was killed, it was a simple slip. It wasn't anything dramatic, you know, it was just he, 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 he lost his grip on the rock at the, at the wrong time and was unable to recover and yeah. fell to his death as a result. You know, it's, it's simple things. And sometimes there's no amount of being an expert won't save you from the simple things sometimes, you know, yeah. so the, the best Ireland's greatest mountaineer died on a mountain. You know, there's, there's, well, uh, you know, it's a risk you take, and you. The key thing is you going in knowing these risks and trying to to minimize them. But be prepared. You know that was the big, uh, for me the big the big learnings from this and from the Chinese incident is to be prepared. You know, don't skimp on your gear. Uh, the Chinese guys were skipping on the gear and they, they were not prepared. They they didn't really understand the environment they were getting into and what the environment could do to them, and as a result, they didn't whatever the race rules say they didn't have enough gear themselves and in the end it's your own responsibility to say to look after yourself uh, yeah. you know the, the hardest race i've ever done is the barkley marathons and there is no kit list for the barkley marathons you're expected to be uh fully responsible for yourself the Laz is not going to tell you what gear you should bring Laz is only going to tell you what gear you can't bring which is electronic aids you're expected yeah. to have enough knowledge and understanding of the environment you're going into to look after yourself. And also the knowledge that if you go on for 24 hours, they might think about sending someone to look for you. 
but it's expected to be out there on your own, you know? Um, and that that's the kind of approach anyone should take in going to mountains. A lot of people see me running around the hills in Dublin here and this big rucksack uh, with me. And I, I jokingly often say, yeah, well, I have enough gear to survive the blizzard in, in the rucksack in the middle of summer, but I do actually have enough gear to survive the blizzard uh, because I'm in the mountains and, you know, I could trip. I could have a simple fall and break a hip and be stuck there uh, and, you know, smash my phone on the way down. So, you know, I, I want to be able to, you know, live, live to tell the tale if that happens or at least have enough gear that I give myself a sporting chance of living to tell the tale. So you do have to take this responsibility even in, you know, simple mountains like Ireland, uh, but are actually probably as likely to kill you as the Alps because the environment in Ireland is so uh, wet that uh, you can get hypothermia extremely quickly any time of year. So, you know, it's something you do have to take on board. It's, it's, it's a playground, but it's not a safe playground, you know. Yeah, uh, and I suppose maybe the, the fact that that was the first tragedy in 17 editions of the race is a testament to the, to the safety that is normally there year in, year out. So Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's certainly not the first, uh, the, the first race I've been in where... where um, you know, the, 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 so, so say the Tour de Gaunt, someone was killed in, in the relatively early years in Tour de Gaunt, again, in a very simple circumstance, nothing dramatic, uh, yeah. a simple slip. Uh, these things happen. And, you know, they will always happen just because uh, the law of averages. I think the UTMB is, it's amazing that they got, it, they've managed to go for so long, given that it's 10,000 runners per year, uh, many of whom are possibly, uh, pushing a bit beyond uh, their their abilities and their knowledge of the mountains that they've got away for so long without something like this happening is actually a testament to how well organized it has been. Uh, yeah, and I suppose there, there was a touching moment, um, I think just before the start of the UTMB, where a friend of the Czech runner addressed yeah. UTMB runners and wished everybody well. Um, and then before the start of, I think, the OCC the following morning, there was a minute of applause before the start of all the races as well. So there were some nice touches. Um, and they also uh, included some of the other uh, ultra runners who have, who have died in recent times as well at the start of the UTMB. Be yes. like Emma Rocco, which was very nice. I thought that was a good touch, not not just to focus yeah, on the one, but, exactly. but to bring in everyone in the entire community like that was good. Very nice. Yeah, and maybe just on the flip side then as well. You know, I was a little bit disappointed. I must admit to to see all the the photographs going up in the hours after the tragedy of all the winners crossing the finish line and all the Instagram posts and Facebook posts. I thought maybe a little bit insensitive there, and they could have maybe had a bit of a social media blackout on the on the on the podium finishers as they were coming through but it's it's a tough call that one again yeah. i was actually hoping as as i knew what was going on and i knew that the winners had proceeded beyond it you know or the, the leaders were proceeding beyond it and possibly had not known i was actually hoping that no one would tell them that they could yeah. you know go 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 finish their race without without having to make any questions about that? What should I do, and so on? Because those are those are not things you you expect to have to deal with in the middle of what is a very arduous race in the first place. Uh, you know, and to have that thrown on top, then it's, it's 
it just throws the whole thing into into an entirely different perspective. So I, I, I don't know what actually happened and how they found out and so on. But yeah. uh, and, and before know. we move off the topic, in a, a big shout out to the fantastic Eva Eva Mundo who stormed through the field, who got through the the tragic moments and during the middle of the night and managed to hang in there and did really really well. They they get to the finish in, in TDS and great strength great determination from from one of ireland's leading ladies yeah i mean she is just an incredible runner and she's come on so much in the last few years it's been fantastic to see you know and, and she's uh, she's at this stage without doubt ireland's greatest ever female ultra runner you know it's it's uh phenomenal because she, she's not just doing it in one sphere she's doing it uh on the mountain she's doing she's got the 24-hour record it's it's very impressive very impressive so uh, and the thing is she'll get better you know she's still learning so <laughs> let's see how far she can go it's great to watch I have to say. yeah maybe looking forward to talking to Eva maybe over the coming weeks and and moving on to your own racing because again such a wonderful race and adventure that the, that you had um you finished in a fantastic 60th position in 28 hours and four minutes but really interestingly, you went through the second checkpoint after the start in 204th, just yeah. after around two hours into the race. And it, looked, it looks like you made a big move in the next few hours, moving up 100 places to La Bam. So maybe just the first question that I have is, tell us about how it felt running out of Chamonix and that unique UTMB experience, of course. And then, yeah, how you made that big jump of 100 places um, around the five-hour mark. Um, how, what was your strategy in that part of the race? As an overall race strategy, really, was to make sure to do the first time very within myself and very steady, because I think the big mistake that most people have to make in the UTMB is just heading out too fast. And it's, it's a double trap, the UTMB, and that you start with this... Everyone is absolutely fired up by the amazing start line experience, which is just the best start line experience I've ever had in any race. Uh, and they did it again this year. With the, they had the, uh, the, the slack line uh, walker above our heads just to add to another piece of uh, innovation to it. It was incredible, I mean, wasn't it? I was looking at it going, oh my God, wow, yeah. Yeah, and that worked. And as usual, I was all pretty calm until the Van Gallis music starts. And when the Van Gallis music starts, I I really get I fire myself up on that one because I've always been a huge Van Gallis fan to begin with. Uh, but that music in that context is just ah, it's just something else. It's brilliant. And then you run out to the streets, and it's four or five deep with people cheering for a kilometer or two. It's just amazing. Uh, but I was making sure, again, to hold back, ease off. I was actually just, as I was running out to the streets, I was looking down at the heels of the guy in front of me, just following on, making sure not to trip and not to not to go too fast, not to try overtaking, you know, just relax, 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 relax on the downhill out of Chamonix and relax into the flat and stay relaxed running along that but what feels like a fat 10k section, but is actually slightly downhill and, and keep it all controlled. And that's what I was at, you know, and uh, I was expecting to be overtaken by some of the, the faster Irish lads coming up behind me, but uh, uh, didn't 
Gavin did draw a level at me before he started injecting gear from his rucksack and had to stop. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. but that was it in terms of Irish lads uh, uh, catching me. So that was it. And then the first time um, I was, rather than try and run at all, which I would have done in my early days, I was more determined that I, I would default to walking and run the bits I felt were more energy efficient to run, which isn't that many in the first time because it's, it's a long enough climb. And that was a strategy. And that, you know, anyone who overtook me, overtook me, that was fine. Uh, and again, but with a good race strategy, you already start to overtake people who've done the flat bit a bit too fast. You know, and I think I ended up in the same position uh, coming down I, if the, at the end of the first descent, as I was at the top of the first descent, between all the overtaking back and forth and so on, just ended up pretty neutral in the end, but with very little effort on my behalf to to maintain position or anything like that. Because again, the first descent is another sort of trap. In the past, I've uh, done myself uh, some damage on the first descent, long-term damage, not, uh, just by trying to run it too hard and too fast. So it's just staying within myself, keep it easy, keep it back. And then through the first aid station, uh, I've run out second aid station, actually, sorry. Uh, um, it's, uh, I've, I've run so easy to that point that I can just run straight through the aid station, same as the first one. So you gain people by just not stopping. Yeah, <laughs> that's the simplest way in the world to get to gain on people. They stop at the main station, you don't. Yeah, and as yeah. as you move through the night, then in I mean, how do you manage those tough hours during the night? Um, is Helen there with you at the aid stations? Um, helping you along the way? Not in this case, no. Um, the um, I Le Contamine is one of the key ones in the, the first half as far as aid station support is concerned. And I it's very nice to have a support person there if the weather is bad, but the weather was good this year, so uh no need for a support person. And uh so Helen and it's a very hard one to get to. So uh Helen didn't need to come there, which is great for both of us. And again, I went through very fast at aid station, you know, just taking grabbing a cup of coke and then walking out and drinking the coke on the walkout. So my actual stop time in the aid station was very short indeed. And I would have overtaken a ton of people in that aid station because there's so many support crew in that aid station. Anyone there with support crew who was in there before me and still there, I was all taking them. So I, I guess I would have taken 20 or 30 people just on that aid station alone. And then, you know, you, you, you just run out and you keep it steady. And it's, it's at this stage in a race, even that early, that you start getting the benefits of running the first up and down nice and steady because people who run it too fast are starting to feel the effects. And uh, I'm not basically i'm just still running my steady pace and then it ramps up to a rather long climb uh up to uh the uh, band isn't it which uh you know it gets very steep very fast and uh, yeah i just by power marching i was able to you know overtake one or two other people and the good thing is nobody's overtaking me at this point so that's you know it's starting to settle into the point where i'm i'm you know it's turned from not holding steady but just slowly taking people back bit by bit by bit um but i wasn't really worried about position more uh effort levels and pacing and keeping myself moving what i found in the past is that second big climb uh can be the one where the us poor paddy suffered badly from altitude uh mm -hmm. first first one he seems to get over fine the second one is where 
you start feeling why why is everyone else overtaking me why do i feel so out of breath compared to all these guys around me and uh it's usually you know the altitude but i'd, I'd actually come out slightly earlier this year and i'd done got up in the cable cars for a couple of days and then run down for a bit of exercise which is you know easy going because you're running downhill not uphill but getting as high as i can up the cable cars to get some amount of attitude to time utilization not a lot but better than nothing and yeah. it seemed it seemed to pay off this year because i was actually whereas last year i was suffering going up that second time this year i was actually marching up quite happily and well, managed yeah. to hold, hold my position rather than lose positions which i have been doing previously which is great yeah, you know? yeah. For, for people listening in i mean that maybe wouldn't have the same experience as yourself that are just new to the sport and learning is there a specific nutritional strategy that you have and um, is it like a road marathon where you're taking say you know morton gels every 30 minutes are you constantly refueling right throughout uh, and what's your go-to foods is it carbohydrates is it fat-based maybe tell us a little bit about that uh i try to i try to fat burn uh so my favorite food is no food uh Eat, wow. eat nothing would be the preference um wow, incredible uh so uh i can tell you what i rate over the course of the race because it's, it's pretty pretty easy uh, outside of aid stations i ate one snickers bar that was it uh and that was uh i can't remember why but i just decided to gee myself up at some point and that was just decided oh yeah i'll have a snickers bar just for a bit of enjoyment and that was that <laughs> so, uh, I, I i had a lot more with me uh well not a lot more i had a bit more with me you know one or two bars i had a i make my own flapjacks so i i had there was tons of flapjacks available in uh, drop bags and so on but uh i didn't actually eat any during the race that would have been the most energy if uh the nearest i would have had to energy food would have been in my homemade flapjacks which are incredible and i'm presuming that's just that's just after years of running fasted at weekends yeah journey, yeah exactly and just years of adaptation yeah adaptation it takes you know it takes a minimum of six months to to get an adaptation it's like you know doing any training you know you can't you can't decide you run a marathon and run it two weeks later you have to train for uh for a couple of months to get your body and adapted to the point where it can handle the stress same with um fat burning you're not going to pick it up instantly you can't decide i'll do that for next week's race or a race in two weeks you need to spend uh at least six months you know trying to teach your body to burn fat better and the way i do it is pretty simple you know i just i never eat on a training run or uh mostly i never drink uh i'd have water on really hot days that's about it uh and that tends that tends to be three or four days a year or yeah. or every day when I'm in your hometown in the Canaries, uh, but uh, uh, they never eat uh, on training runs, and try uh, especially the weekends. Try and go uh, in a fasted state. Now, there's a lot of running theory will tell you that's not a good idea and it doesn't work, but I find it works for me. And okay. uh, the end result is um, uh, I I can I can do these races. I've run 24. I've won 24 hour races without eating at all. Uh, you know, I've, I've run for a couple of days in, in six day races without eating much. And, you know, as I say, with UTMB on the course, just one, one Snickers bar and at aid stations, I was just, the only food I had was, uh, bits of fruit here and there. Uh, I don't think I had 
or the math grade sessions. So well, that's the well, I hope the flapjacks <laughs> didn't go to waste, Dean, and you had them for your breakfast the next day at least. Oh, they're I'm very tasty when you're flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, as I said, it, it's a strategy that does work for you. And I know nutrition is very individual as well, but at so. this stage, it, it's proven that it works. And you did. You, you defended a 60th position for about what the last seven hours or so you were yeah. defending defending that 60th position and um, i'm not too sure when you found out or when you realized that you were in silver medal position in the v2 vet category and you are being hunted for the hold of saturday afternoon from what from 2 p.m until the finish line at 9 p.m so when did you find out that you were in the second position? Because I know, I know at heart you're a supreme competitor. You love the competition. You love getting up on the podium like a great, like the great competitor that you are as well. And I know that's a real motivator for you as well, because there was a Swede hunting me down. Stellan was his name, and it, it, it was it was 15 minutes, it was 12 minutes, and he came in behind you. He was hunting you. So how did it feel and when did you find out that you were being hunted? Yeah, and I was also aware that I was first Irish person. So I, I kind of guessed of that some, somewhere behind me, like Sir Brian Buckley or, or the life of Gavin Byrne, was probably trying to hunt me down as well. And I'd have been disappointed if they weren't. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I was aware that I was out there, sitting out there as the prey, for sure. And... Uh, yeah, that's an enjoyable position to be in. Uh, is is uh, it an enjoyable Like, It's interesting that you say that because some people might buckle under that pressure. Some sure. people might get stressed out about it. So it, it's great to hear that you actually enjoy it and, and embrace the, yeah, embrace yeah, no, the challenge. I, I, lo I love racing. Absolutely love racing. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, I kind of had my world narrowed a bit in that and that I wasn't I wasn't too focused on the 60th position type thing because okay. uh, it's one of those things. I knew that once that, that I was running in a spaced out part of the race, I was doing well because it gets crowded the further back you go. And uh, yeah. after a couple of hours, I realized there was, there was only one or two people around. And like, that's a good sign. That means I'm towards the front. And I was checking their numbers and I was seeing I was in the sort of the, the back end elite kind of numbers as opposed to the the... the you know, silver leash, which is what my number was. So I knew I was, I was racing reasonably well. Um, but I, what I was focused on was exactly that. I wanted to, if I see any old fellas, I got to stay in front of the old fellas because, you know, I want to get on that category po uh, podium. That was my number one aim. Um, so it's what I got into. The first Rock. time you've been on the no, veterans no. category and you can be in Germany. Yeah, no, it, I have been on the over 40s when I set my PV uh, as second and second over 40. And the last edition, I was the third over 50. So, but I went into this race and the, the ranking showed me as being the fifth ranked uh, over 50. So I knew I, I, yeah. I was going to have to work for it. And uh, the first two guys looked exceptionally good. Uh, and one of them being last year's uh, or previous edition's winner, who's just a phenomenal runner. Yeah, and he wasn't being out there in first, um, way ahead. So when I got into Champax, that was the first time I met Helen, uh, a support, and she was able to tell me I was in second. That uh, the first place guy was hours ahead, so not even think about him. That was done and dusted. He was going to win. So he I was very strong, was wasn't he? A winning. French runner, I think. He oh really yeah, 
yeah, again, again, same. He pretty much repeated his performance uh, from from the previous edition. Uh, phenomenally good runner. Uh, so, and that helps when you know he's that good, he's that far ahead. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so it became a race for second then. And she told me there was two guys uh, about half an hour behind me. Uh, so I knew then I had to I had the work cut out because that's that's close enough that it's very feasible to catch in the remaining one third of the race. So because you never know what will happen. So that had me on my toes for sure. Um, and uh, I was told as well that Brian wasn't too too far off, you know, either. He was within certainly within half an hour, an hour or whatever at that stage. So I was well, well motivated leaving there for sure. And again, uh, short short uh, duration of the aid station would have overtaken a few faster runners by just getting out of the aid station quicker. Uh, yeah. And uh, away I went. But it got really interesting in terms of the competition because I actually had a good climb out of there. It's one of the hardest climbs up uh, the bovine climb, which comes after the descent after Champax go down for an easy descent and then this brutally steep climb up uh, bovine, which is a real tester, especially in the middle of the day as it was then because the heat can pile on, although there was a nice cooling breeze. Um, I did pre- I did very well in that, but then for some reason my descent off that, uh, I just it didn't, I wasn't as mentally engaged as I could have been, and I had a relatively poor descent, and I, I was aware of it, and got over, re-overtaken by some of the guys that had overtaken at the aid stations and so on. Um, and then by the time I arrived at the tree on the next aid station, I was feeling pretty exhausted, and that was definitely my my race low. So I spent uh, a lot longer in the tree on aid station, I think, than any other one, just to, just to do a bit of... Uh, mental as much as physical recovery possibly because uh, I was feeling the tiredness uh, but ahead of the same one of the other people in the aid station said it looked like I just flicked a switch and said you know okay I'm out let's go <laughs> and I literally walked out because uh, thinking yeah it's better to be walking up the course and sitting in the aid station feeling tired which is exactly what I did then walked up the course and then got myself going on the next climb and started marching again and back on pace uh, aware to that that more than likely, I'd let the, the guys behind me get some easy closing time. And then it got really interesting coming into Valor scene, which is the uh, it's sort of the, the, the aid station before the last big climb, because uh, there was a, a, an Irish lad, as I was running in, an Irish lad that cheered me in and said, the, uh, the, second, the third place uh, uh, over 50 is seven minutes behind you. And there's welcome to reality there guys yeah, so uh that seven minutes is uh closed right up so then i knew yeah, it really yeah. was being nothing nothing in a race like that yeah yeah but it was a great fight in, in to see you coming in and if i can just set the scene for the listeners night has just descended on chamonix mont blanc is in the background there's some irish scattered around town helen of course is there after running her occ which she did great in yeah and i saw you coming from about maybe 200 meters away and your head was down eyes were focused it was yeah. on the ground looking ahead and you had an incredible rhythm i mean again after 171 kilometers it was step by step, stride by stride, and it was all just about, I could see it in your eyes, getting yeah. to the finish line and getting that silver medal, which you did. And just maybe final question on the, on the race itself. In What goes through your, your mind when you do cross that finish line? Do, do you switch off with the exhaustion? Do you take it in? Do you see friends and family? 
I try, I try and take, yeah, I try and enjoy it. It's absolutely, that's what, you know, all the effort is to get there. So try and enjoy that moment as much as possible and make it last as long as possible is my aim. So yeah, I'll try and soak up the, you know, whatever atmosphere is coming from the crowd, you know, and then, and, you know, give give back as much as I can and, you know, really appreciate everyone coming out, including yourself and cheering me in. So even though I might, I might be focused running in, but I am absolutely loving it. And uh, great, yeah. very, very deliberately loving it at that as well. You know, and Paddy O'Leary popping out from the side as well, you know, after yeah, his race yeah. and so on. That was all great. And then getting at the finish line, you know, a quick interview with the, the Columbia uh, camera crew who were there, and that was great. And then yeah. going through to the other side and meeting the, this fantastic bunch of people who turned out to to to, uh, to greet me in, which is a real characteristic of the week in that, you know, any time I went to the finish line to greet an Irish person in, I, I'm, you know, there was also a few people there at, at minimum, sometimes a very large bunch there, you know, which is it's great. It's a real good... Uh, good community spirit amongst the Irish runners there. Everyone was making an effort to turn out for whoever they could to, to welcome them in. And that was fantastic. You know, so yeah. I embraced all that. And I, I knew Brian wasn't that far behind me as well. And sure enough. Only just a was, couple of minutes in the 50, end. It was a super real yeah, breakout. About 15 Brian, minutes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he yeah. he was undoubtedly hunting me down as well, which is great, you know, and uh, great run for him. Um, the only other thing I need to do at that stage is I'd fallen six or seven times in the race and my knee was a bloody mess. So uh, <laughs> I needed to get to the aid station, but Brian won that race. When, when I arrived in there, <laughs> Brian was already sitting down in the, in the medical tent getting his knee seen to, which is far less spectacular looking than mine. He had a small cut. I, I'd taken half my knee off. <laughs> yeah. He won that race. Um, <laughs> but but when in, just to finish off the interview for today, and again, thank you for your time. I know you're still in recovery mode post-Chamonix. So, and again, just to acknowledge that great great performance you know it's it, it really fantastic to see and i know you're you're very good with sharing your knowledge and encouraging the next generation to come through um, and i was going to just ask you a general approach to your own training that we were discussing before the race that myself and Rene, for example on the show we talk a lot about heart rate training yeah and you yeah. mentioned that you use rpe a lot yeah. in your own training and that's a big factor in your own success and longevity as well so maybe just a final tip for the show today and um, maybe talk to us about rpe what it is and how you apply it to your own successful training and racing yeah it's it's not far off heart rate training in fairness rpe is rate of perceived exertion which comes down to how do you feel you know mm-hmm. so in my case it's you know if i want to go out for a hard run I run hard. If it feels hard, then I've run hard. I'm not yeah. checking. I'm not checking the watch. I'm not checking timings. I never actually measure any training run. I never measure the time and distance, one or the other. But never two together because that's in my uh, world. That's paralysis by analysis, and you turn a good run into a bad okay. one. If you perceive your run to be a good run, it's a good run. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's, sure, that's good enough. Uh, so the fundamental, you know, it's and learning to tune in to 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 know yourself what's hard and what's easy for me is key to pacing. Now, you, there's definitely uh, if you can't, if you're not confident you can do it yourself, then then the heart rate monitor is a super tool to to use that. That's probably the the next best tool to have in the armory is is the an accurate heart rate monitor based on accurate. Uh, 
measures of your max heart rate, et cetera, and uh, to, to lay out what's, what's hard and easy on the basis of that. But I prefer to do it by perception because that perception becomes the ability to pace in races. So, that, you know, when you're standing at the start line, you know what you should be feeling as you're running without needing a watch to tell you or watch the beep and you know your feelings don't fail your feelings don't run out of batteries you know that's uh, it's gonna work and it's and usually it been studies not done. to be not to be a slave to the technology yeah. as well it is very useful absolutely it can be great to use the stats but you have to be able to manage and understand your own body as well big time and it's one of the key i think it's one of my uh one of my key abilities is to be able to to, to tune into that and to dial it in and you know, to, use, to have the confidence to do it, not just both in training and racing. And the other thing about training, of course, I do, I do actually uh, keep, you know, the fundamental, the, the major fundamentals of, you know, things like the 80-20 rule I'll try and, and stick to. So that 80% of my running is run at an easy or perceived easy pace to the point that I can feel guilty that I'm just running around enjoying myself too much, not actually doing hard work. But of course, for 80% of the time, you shouldn't be doing hard work. You should be just relaxed and, uh, yeah. you know, doing the training. And that's, that's the RPE approach in, in a nutshell. You know? And then when you run hard, if you feel, you run hard, if you feel you run hard, you know, you don't need the heart rate monitor to tell you that. Uh, but it's probably, probably a little harder to, to, to squeeze out the subtle variations between, you know, uh, tempo runs versus sprint efforts and so on. But uh, I'd, I'd be confident enough in myself that I know what I'm doing in terms of yeah. uh, doing those pacings. And certainly uh, the results seem to indicate that I'm doing okay. I do occasionally wonder uh, if I could do better with the heart rate monitors, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm actually very happy to, to, to do uh, them uh, for the most part, just because it's, um, it, it's a more self-learning sort of way of doing it and it's a very powerful way to do it in that case that build your own confidence in your own abilities and your own perceptions which is all it's all part of it you know the absolutely and it's worked so well for you Ina, and i've been lucky enough to see it win in oman in the middle of a desert with with, with a irish race director an irish winner and myself there on the an Irish man, sorry, yeah, absolutely yeah <laughs> and i've been lucky now to see a, a couple of times getting on the podium in utmb so i look forward to seeing more successes over the years i've no doubt that you will keep going like the great competitor that you are so ian listen until the next time until the next race and until the next podium thanks a million for joining yeah. us today it's awesome pleasure listening and hearing your voice. Thanks very much, Alan. Hey, Gary, and bye. Great to have Ian there back with us and well done Ian on another great performance in Chamonix and indeed well done to all the Irish who did so well over in UTMB. It was really great to see so many flags there being flown so proudly and a great crack between everybody as well and I was lucky enough to see some of you cross the finish line and if I didn't see you there this year well hopefully our paths will cross next time. Lots of results coming in as we were putting the show together over the course of the weekend. Well done to friend of the show Barry Minnick on a great win.
in the Morris Mullins. Barry was in full Baywatch mode as he crossed the finish line. Great to see Barry going so strong again. And to Becky Quinn, who took the win in the ladies' race as well. Well done to Richard Noonan and all the team for what looked like a great race. And down in the kingdom, it was a very fast Kerryway Ultra this year with Leanne Van Dyke from the Netherlands taking the win comfortably in the ladies' race in 28 hours, 28 hours and 39 minutes. And John McHugh in a storming 22 hours and 25 minutes took the win in a very tight and competitive men's race. So well done to John on nailing his race tactics and performance there. That's a wrap for this week, guys. Lots going on. Well done to everybody who has been racing. Isn't it great to be back? And if you get a chance, do pop over to Patreon, Trail Running Ireland podcast to help keep the lights on in the Trail Running Ireland HQ, i.e. the kids' playroom. Until next time, everybody, get your running gear on. Let's go. Let's go.